Well, when I was still in seminary, I had a friend named Jung, and one day he came into the student center and he plopped down next to myself and several of the other students who were sitting there. And Jung didn't look like he was having a very good day, so we asked him what was wrong. And Jung shook his head and he said, Valentine's Day was very bad. Now, in seminary, none of us had a lot of money and um, you couldn't really do a lot of things for your wife. Uh, But Jung was particularly known for being tight. And so one of the guys said to him, you didn't get your wife anything, did you? No flowers, no candy. And um, Jung said, no, flowers cost so much, they die, big waste of money. And one of the guys said, yeah, but Jung, you had to do something. And he defended himself and he said, I did. I got a very good gift. I gave my wife barbells and the buns of steel workout video. (laughs) Well, they tell you, you reap what you sow, so you can see why Jung was having a bad day. Now, in the end, as penance, he spent more on flowers and candy than he would have done if he had just done that in the first place. Now, men, by the reaction you just heard, I want to remind you in two weeks with Valentine's Day coming, (laughs) not a good gift. Well, what we're going to see today in Ruth chapter 4 is that there was a man who was a little bit like Jung. Because as he looked at an opportunity he had, he decided it would cost too much and it would be a big waste of money. And in the end, it ended up costing him more than he could have ever imagined. I want you to look with me at Ruth chapter 4. And as we're turning there, I want to remind you of what we saw last time as we left off in chapter 3. There, Ruth had just accidentally proposed marriage to Boaz. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, she thought, who would be the one to redeem her. And what he told her was that he would settle the matter quickly. And as we turn here to chapter 4 today, what we find is... Uh, Boaz coming to settle the matter. He's left the threshing floor, and verses 1 through 4 tell us this. Now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city. And he said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now what we find here is a scene a little bit like what you see on the slide. The elders of the city would gather in the gate. This would be the place that was a courtroom. And as we look at this, the only thing missing is the bailiff calling the courtroom to order because uh, he's convening a court. Jewish custom said that a quorum of ten elders or ten men constituted a representative body. If you had ten men in an area, they could start a synagogue. Or ten elders coming together represented a legal body. And so what's happening here is this is a, a courtroom. Now, the question at hand is, who is the Goel? Who is the kinsman redeemer? This is a word that we've seen as we've gone through Ruth. The word means to set free, to liberate, or redeem. And you remember, as we saw in chapter 3, that Boaz said to Ruth, uh, he said in in Ruth 3.12, Now it is true that I am a Goel. However, there is a closer relative, a Karav. Do you remember that? He said, there's a man who is closer to me in line to be the Goel. Now, throughout Ruth, we've talked about the role of a Goel. And this is the things that a Goel would do. He was responsible for redeeming the property that a relative had to sell. And you see the verse references there out of Leviticus. He was the person who would redeem a relative who was sold into slavery. He was the one who was the blood avenger, who would avenge the death of a relative who had been murdered. And lastly, for raising up an heir, if a, if a male heir has died childless, 
If there was a family line that was coming to an end because there was no son to carry on, this law of Leverite marriage, as you see there in Deuteronomy 25, is what the Goel would do. So what Boaz says here in verses 3 through 4 is, he says to this closest relative, this Goel, Boaz can fulfill that role, but there is a man who is closer. He says, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. Now, this other man that Boaz is talking to is, is a closer relative. Elimelech was Naomi's husband, you'll recall. There were two sons who had also died. And so he is the one who should have been taking care of Ruth and Naomi all along. As we've gone through, we've seen these women have been in town for months. And he was the one who was responsible for caring for these two women. But he's been AWOL. And so what Boaz does here, he gets this man in front of all the witnesses. And he says, it's time to do your duty. Now, as he does so, he kind of takes a little jab at the guy here in verse 4. Because you read, I thought to inform you of this. The, the Hebrew word literally means to uncover the ear. The, the picture is that you would part the hair so that there would be nothing obstructing the hearing. So what he's saying is, uh, he says, you know, Bethlehem's a really small town. We're kind of a sleepy little hamlet. Nothing ever goes on around here. And, and so it's easy for you to have missed what's happened. He's being sarcastic. Remember what we saw in chapter 1 when the two women arrived in the city? It said that the city literally hummed. There was chaos in the streets as the news echoed down the streets. And what he says to this guy in front of everybody is, Well, you know, I can see how you missed it. That these two women have been in town for months and you've somehow not known that you could step up and help them. So I thought to inform you. In other words, it's time to put up. It's time for you to step up. Now, we see in verse 11 when we get there that there's more than just the 10 elders listening to the case. Many of the people, remember, they're gathering in the city gates. So as people are coming and going, uh, this was big stuff. Hey, you see a little courtroom's convened and everybody's kind of gathering in a circle around to hear what's happening. So everybody's watching. And, and he says, uh, I'd like to know if you're going to buy the land, because if you're not, I will. Now, in verse 4, we see that the man says, I will redeem it. In the Hebrew text, he, he literally shouts it. It's in the emphatic form. The guy gets excited and he says, I want the land. I'll buy it. Sure. Now, remember that Elimelech's family was one of the old families. They were Ephrathites. They were the old, old family's founding. So the land that they owned was very prime. It would have been there near the town square. It would have been some of the best land in the area. And being a close relative, Elimelech's land would have bordered his own. If you remember when God brought the tribes into the land, he divided it up not only by tribal portions, but then within that tribal portion, it was divided by families. And so if Elimelech is the closest relative to this guy, it means his land would have bordered it. And if you've ever owned ranch land or farmland, and you know there's that piece of property just over the fence line, you've always wished you could acquire... Well, suddenly this guy gets the opportunity to buy the adjacent land to his farm, to his fields. And so he's excited. He says, sure, I want the land. Now, the Levitical law said that the property redeemed reverted back to the family that sold it. Remember, the law of the Goel was to redeem the property a relative had to sell. 
And it would go back to this family. God did not want these tribal allotments dispersed, and so it was bought within family units so tribes would continue to carry through their inheritance. Now, the problem in Elimelech's family is all the men have died. Women are not allowed to own property. And so if this guy buys the land, he literally gets deed to the property, he thinks. There's no more men, so it becomes his, which is why he's so excited. Now, what he doesn't realize is that Boaz has been shrewdly baiting him along. Because notice he's identifying the land through Elimelech's widow, Naomi. Naomi, who's old. Naomi, who's past childbearing age. So he thinks, if I buy the land, it's mine. Now, in verse 5, Boaz drops the bomb on the guy. He says, oh, and on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabites, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. You see, Boaz says, oh, did, did I forget to mention this is a package deal? You see, along with the land, you get Mahalon's widow, the bottom, raising up an heir. He says, on the day that you quana, it means to buy, acquire, redeem the land, you also acquire Ruth. You see, as a kinsman redeemer, he says, your role is not just to buy the land, at the top there in chapter 4, verse 3. But chapter 4, verse 10 of Ruth, it's to raise up an heir. You see, this, this other Goel has been sidestepping his role for these women, so he didn't know about Ruth. Now, it's not that he didn't know Ruth returned with Naomi. The whole town knew that. But remember, nobody else was at the threshing floor the night before, where Ruth came and said, spread your kenath, spread your wing over me, marry me, Become the Goel, the Redeemer. And he said, Ruth, your hesed, your loyal love, your faithfulness is even better than before. Not only have you cared for Naomi, but now you're willing to step into the role of raising up an heir. To marry back into the family, to raise up a son, to continue the line. Now, this guy didn't know that. And so what he does is, Boaz here, as he drops the bomb, he says, Ruth is the Moabite, the Moabitess. When you get Ruth, you get, you get the land. And Ruth is, you know, that young fertile one who can still have a son. And what this guy suddenly realizes is the land he thought that was going to be his won't be his. Because he will spend the money to buy the land. And then he'll have to give that land back. Not only will he be out the money of, of, that it costs to redeem the land itself, but suddenly he's going to have a family to support that's not his own, so to speak. Because in verse 3, we saw that Boaz is committed to doing the right thing. Remember, he wanted to marry Ruth. But what he said is, I'm going to give this other guy a chance. But do you notice the liabilities now that he's piling up? You know, the scripture tells us as believers, we are to be innocent as lambs and shrewd as serpents. And here we see an example of what that looks like. Boaz is being righteous. He's doing what God said, giving this other Goel the opportunity. But what he's not doing is making it easy on the guy. He's piling up the liabilities. He, he calls her the Moabitess. Up until this point, Boaz has always referred to her as my servant, my daughter. But now he kind of twists the knife a little and he says, yeah, you know, Ruth the foreigner. You get her, and you're going to lose the land. 
And as he's emphasizing the liabilities, it works. Look at verse 6. And the closest relative said, "Ah, you know, I just remembered. I cannot redeem it for myself. Why? Look at what he says. Lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. You know, when he says it will jeopardize my inheritance, again, this verb is in the emphatic form. It's in the hiphile form, which intensifies the meaning. He literally says redeeming Ruth will ruin, will spoil, will destroy my inheritance. It describes the effects of warfare, the aftermath of an insect invasion that wipes out the crops. He says, if I marry Ruth, there will be nothing left. Now, friends, he's not worried she's going to be one of these shop-till-you-drop type of wives. We've already seen Ruth is a woman of excellence, a hard worker. But what he's worried about here is that Ruth, being young and fertile, is going to conceive a son. And as she conceives a son, the Leverite law says that it reverts back to the childless line. So Elimelech and Mahalan's line would suddenly be restored So this boy that he now has to provide for and raise will not be counted as his son. He's already going to be out the cost of buying back the land. Now he's got to raise the boy. And in the time it takes for this boy to grow up and be able to take care of Ruth and Naomi, he's got to take care of the two widows as well that whole time. And then in an ironic twist of irony, what could actually happen is he has a son that goes to Elimelech and then he doesn't have another son. And guess what happens then? His line ceases to exist because he doesn't have a male heir to continue his line. So as this guy is counting out the liability all the way down, he says, it could end up costing me everything and jeopardizing my inheritance. Everything I own could end up going to a Limelech's family. He says, there is no way I'm going to risk this. It is going to cost everything, even possibly me losing my own name. Now, I want you to notice something. As this man looks to the future and he's so worried about preserving his own name, have you noticed that nowhere are we told what his name is? You see, what the Hebrew text literally calls him is the Peony Almonii. And that's a fancy Hebrew way of saying the anonymous one. The writer literally calls him the anonymous one through the whole story. Do you see, in a divine act of justice, in a twist of irony, this guy who was so worried about preserving his own name ends up having his name lost. We don't know who this guy is. We're never told his name. But here we are thousands and thousands of years later hearing the name of Boaz. Boaz is the one who is willing to do what God wanted, who is willing to sacrifice to trust God. And he has his own name remembered, as has happened for thousands of years. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary who gave his life along with several other men in the Ecuador jungle. And as he was, before he was martyred, he wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, as you look at your own life today, what are you holding on to? What are you trying to keep? What are you trying to hold on to? This man says, you know, doing God's work will cost me too much. 
Are you like this guy where you're, you're so worried about building up your own little kingdom or doing your own agenda that you say, God, you know, I, I can't risk doing what you're asking. I can't, I can't step into that role and serve there or I can't give that resource because it'll mean that, that I won't have it for myself. How many of us here have had God lay some need, person, or project before us and we refuse to become a part of it? Because we say it's going to cost me too much. Now, I'm not telling you to be foolish, to give everything that you have away, but I am telling you at times to say, God has called me to this and will I step into it? You know, there's a very simple exercise you can do in your life to figure out where your priorities are if they're placed on the right thing. You can go to the store and get two sets of stickers, buy red stickers and white stickers. And you can go throughout everything in your life, your home, your business, your garage, your wherever you have stuff. And you can put these stickers on these people or property that you have in your life. And if you put a red sticker on everything that one day will burn up, a red sticker on everything that one day will just go to dust, be destroyed, that will not last for all eternity, and you put red on that, Now, get a lot of red stickers, I'm telling you, if you're going to do this. Because what you'll find is the only things that you'll put a white sticker on are going to be people, the Word of God, and the things you do for God that will last for all eternity. And as you put these two different stickers on, you'll suddenly realize what is most important in your life, where your priorities should be. This man was holding on to the things that had no eternal value. He wasn't investing in the right things. The question is, are we as God's people? Rather than spending his resources on redeeming the things God wanted him to do, he hoarded them for his own agenda to preserve his inheritance, to preserve his name. And God says, guess what? It's all going to go away. And people are only going to know that you were the anonymous one. But Boaz, who was willing to sacrifice his wealth to do what God wanted, he ends up being blessed in many ways. His name is remembered not just here in the book of Ruth, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, where you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, do you know what you find there? Boaz. And you know what's interesting? God could have had that line reported through Elimelech and Mahalon. But God is an extra way of blessing Boaz, says, I'm going to record that Boaz was the father. His name is preserved for all eternity. How many of us see life like this other Goel did, only wanting to do things in terms of what we think is important rather than God's perspective? You know, as you think about that, what if God had done the same thing with us? What if God, when he looked at us, as our Goel, our Redeemer, had said, you know, it's going to cost me too much. I'm going to have to give my son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and pay a a violent and horrible death to pay the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. What if God had looked at us and said, the cost is too high, I won't do it. But thankfully, God said, the cost is worth it. 
I will give everything. I will give my only begotten son, Jesus, to redeem you and me from our sins. In verses 7 and 8, we see that Boaz becomes the redeemer. It says, now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. He literally takes off his shoe and he hands it to the guy. Now, we're thinking, why, why do you do that? Well, it was the way that title transactions involving land deals were, were sealed. The Newsy text, which is an ancient writing found by archaeologists, said this. When a man sold a piece of property, he would lift his foot from the land, and he would take the foot of the new owner of the land, and he would place it on the land. What he was doing was he was showing a transfer of the right. He's saying, I no longer have the right to walk on the land, but you do. This is now your property. Now, the scriptures tell us another way that the sandal would be removed was to show shame to somebody. This is what it tells us in Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, this is the Leverite marriage, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish the name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come up to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now we think, ooh, that's bad, right? It is bad. For the rest of this man's life, he would be shamed and everybody would look at him and say he was not willing to fulfill God's law. He was not willing to do what he should. Now, here we don't see Ruth pulling the sandal off his foot and spitting in his face because there was another Goel. There was a man by the name of Boaz who said, I will step in. I will take his place. It says in verses 9 and 10, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Mahalon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. He says, I'm fulfilling the Goel's role, not just buying the land, but raising up an heir. I'm purchasing this to give back to the family line. He literally says here, I bought it all, the land as well as Ruth. Now, men, he's not saying that that Ruth is a piece of property that I now own. What he's making sure here, remember, this is a court hearing. He's making sure that everybody knows the debts are covered. He says, I bought all the liabilities. I've acquired the land. I've acquired the widow for the purpose of paying the accounts in full as the redeemer. He says that she, the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, is now my responsibility. I will raise up an heir. He uses the same Hebrew word from verse 5, Kronah. He says, I've bought, I've acquired. Why? To redeem 
Boaz said, there is a personal cost to the Redeemer. I am paying. I am paying the accounts that I did not create. The debts that are there, I did not make, but I am covering them and removing them. Friends, do you see what Jesus Christ did for us as our Goel? He did not owe our debt. He did not create the debt of sin. We owed that penalty. And he came in and at a great personal cost to himself, he said, I am covering the penalty. I'm closing the account. I'm paying the debts in full. This is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Jesus died on the cross, he served as our great Goel. He covered the cost of our debts. He paid what we did not owe. It's why when you read John 19.30, as Jesus was dying on the cross, what he literally said in the Greek text is, to tell us day. To tell us day. It means to finish, to pay a debt. It's in the perfect form, which is why you see that T-E-T-E repeated. It's a once and for all completed action. What it literally means is paid in full. Archaeologists have found this word written on the bottom of business documents, invoices. It's like the old days when you got that big red stamp that said paid in full and the account was closed. That's what Jesus Christ said as he died on the cross to redeem us. Here, Ruth becomes the bride of Boaz. He says, she is my wife. In 1994, Davis Love III, he was a professional golfer, was playing in the Western Open. And I'm not much of a golfer, but many of you are. And and he had marked his ball, and he needed to move it so another man could, could putt. And after he moved his ball, he wasn't sure if he had placed it back and the, the, he didn't put his marker back where it belonged. He was a couple of two holes later, and he was unsure. So what he did was he gave himself a one-stroke penalty. The rule book said that if you don't replace your marker where it belongs, you, you owe a penalty. Now, as it turned out, that extra stroke that Love gave himself caused him to miss the cut and get knocked out of the tournament. Now, if he had made the cut and finished dead last, he would have earned $2,000 for the week. And when the year was over, Love was $590 short of automatically qualifying for the following year's Masters. By calling a one-stroke penalty on himself, it cost him an automatic bid into the Masters. He began 1995 now needing to win a tournament to get into the Masters. And when Love was interviewed and asked how much it would bother him if he missed the Masters for calling that penalty on himself, this is how he responded. How would I feel if I won the Masters and wondered for the rest of my life if I had cheated to get in? Now, Davis Love's story has a happy ending. Because the week before the Masters, he qualified by winning a tournament in New Orleans, and he went on to finish second in the Masters, winning over a quarter million dollars. No matter what the cost, it was more important to love, to do what was right. And as we look at this story here, that was Boaz. Boaz felt it was more important to do what was right. As we talked about last week when he was there at the threshing floor, he could have cut corners. When Ruth said to Boaz, you know, marry me. As we talked about, he could have rationalized and said, look, this guy's been neglecting you for months. He has no interest in you. I'm going to go ahead and just take you as my wife. By coming before the court, he ran the risk of this guy saying, you know what? I'm going to marry Ruth. 
Boaz loved her, we saw. He wanted her as his wife. But he said, it's more important to me that we do things right, that we allow God to control the circumstances, that we allow God to bring this, to bring you to be the bride of the right man. And as a result, when he walked through town, he and Ruth no longer had to run around hanging their heads. If they had done it the wrong way, everybody would have said, well, you know, Boaz compromised his integrity to get her. But because they did it the right way, look at what verse 11 says. He received not only the blessing of God, the blessing of having Ruth as his wife, but the people blessed them. It says, and the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. You see, instead of becoming the the talk of the gossip mill where everybody says, you know, Boaz cheated, they become the toast of the town. Everybody blesses Boaz. Everybody blesses Ruth. They say, Ruth, may you be like Rachel and Leah. These were the wives of Jacob who had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. The, The people are praying God would remove the curse of barrenness in Ruth. This woman who had been unable to have children with Mahalan, they're saying, may you be fruitful. May you have a son. They, they pray for Boaz. May you achieve wealth. Now in Ruth 2, 1, we saw he was already a man of great wealth. But what the people are saying is we know there is a cost. You're giving of your resource to buy the land. You're giving of your resource to care for these women. You will be raising a family. May God redeem that and repay it in, in, in large amounts. May he multiply. May he add to you in abundance, they're praying. They say, may you be famous in Bethlehem. This prayer was answered. He was famous not just in Bethlehem, but he's famous today. Here we are thousands of years later talking about Boaz. He's in the genealogy not just of King David, but of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. They pray in verse 12, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. You know, they've said imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And what the people are praying is, may you be just like us. You see, the people of Bethlehem came from the line of Perez and Tamar. And they're saying, may your family be as known and be as great as we are. The mother of their line was Tamar, who was also a foreign widow like Ruth, who needed a redeemer when her husband died. Now, if you've ever read Genesis 38, you know that the story there where Tamar's Goel turned out to be Judah, the father of her husband who had died, he was not as righteous as Boaz. In fact, she had to resort to trickery. She had to dress as a prostitute and hang out on the side of the road and trick him to come in and have relations in order for her to become pregnant. And Judah was so worried about this woman, he thought she was like a black widow. He wouldn't give his other son because he thought that that boy would die. So he he avoided her. And when she became pregnant, he said, all right, she's committed adultery. We can We can kill her. But you'll remember she had taken his cord and staff as a down payment. And when they brought her out to, to stone her to death, she said, um, you know, I'll tell you who the man was. Who's, who's staff and signet? Who, who, whose staff is this? And Judah goes, uh, never mind. And he said, you know, she's more righteous than I was. She raised up an heir to the line. When I was unwilling to do what was right, 
She had to do it by deception. Here, Boaz says, we're going to do it the right way. We're going to do it in a way that honors God. And God raised up a line, not just there, but all the way to being in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, the words of Jim Elliott come through here again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, when it comes to your life today, don't lose the things of God. Don't lose the things that you cannot keep. Don't hold on to the stuff of the world. Do what God wants you to do, and you will be blessed. In a moment, we're going to come to the communion table now. And as we do, I want you to think about your life. And I want you to think about what it means to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior if you never have. Friends, Jesus is our Goel. He is the one who paid the penalty. He is the one who sacrificed it all to redeem us. If you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you to do so today. As we come to this communion table, we are reminded that God was willing to pay the penalty to redeem us, to restore us the relationship that had been broken. As we think about what Jesus did for us, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 tells us this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what Jesus did for us. He paid that penalty for us. He redeemed us with his blood. As we come to this communion table, you're going to be handed a a piece of bread representing his body and a cup representing his blood. And as you take, I want you to hold those elements and I want you just to think about the price that was paid, what Jesus did to redeem us, the purchase price that it cost him. And thank God for his great gift to you. Thank God for his great sacrifice. And as I said, if you're one who has not yet come to faith, as you take those elements, tell Jesus, today I'm coming home. I want to be made a part of the family. I know you paid the price for me, and I accept your death. I'm turning from my sins unto you to be my Savior. And if you do so, the Scripture says you will be made a part of the family. The purchase price is paid. The account is closed through the blood of Jesus. For the rest of us who have come to faith, use this time to confess any sins you may have. And if you're a member of Wayside Chapel or if you're just a believer in Christ who is visiting for the first time today, you are welcome to come. This is an open table to all of us who are believers. Men, will you serve us? Take and hold those elements and we'll take them together.
We've talked about the redemption price and what it costs God to redeem us. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The purchase price that Jesus paid to redeem you and me, eat it in remembrance of him. And as we hold this cup, I'll read for you again 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we close. Lord God, we thank you for your great gift of grace, for your willingness to pay the ultimate price, the price of our redemption, to come and take our place, to close the account that we created, to pay the penalty that you did not owe and that we could not pay, to set us free from the penalty of sin and death. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for our story of redemption. We thank you that you were the one who came to set us free. May we be those who go into the world now to share the good news of salvation and the gift of grace that we've received with others who need to be redeemed as well. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our prayer leaders here at the front, if you have a need, they would love to pray with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. 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 Love and serve the Lord.